This podcast is brought to you by Workle, a platform helping people get happier at work. Find out more at workle.co. Work happier. There was this sort of nagging thought at the back of my mind that one day I would go forward and offer myself uh, for the priesthood. Halfway up the mountain, I gave in and I just shouted out, OK, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. It is an enormous privilege to be asked to help people. Welcome to the Happy Work Life podcast, where people with inspiring careers reflect on how happy they have been in their working lives. On this podcast, we hear from a range of people working in business, startups, science, academia, media, healthcare, fashion, and much more, and find out which roles gave them the most satisfaction and importantly, what they have done to get happier at work. So sit down with me, Mark Price, founder of Workle, to help you get happier at work. Workle is the platform where you can find a job in the happiest companies, take our happiness test, network, and get career support from experts, and much, much more. On this edition of the Happy Work Life podcast, my special guest is the Reverend James Jones. James has had a career in ministry. He was the Bishop of Hull, but then probably best known for the 15 years that he spent as the Bishop of Liverpool. He also, during that time, advised the Home Secretary on the Hillsborough disaster and chaired the panel that looked into it. He's written extensively, and you may be aware of him on the BBC Radio 4 Today programme, where he often gives the thought for today, which is always thought-provoking. It's my very great pleasure to welcome James to the podcast. If I can, I'd like to start with your your early years. I'm always intrigued to know, is is there something in somebody's childhood that leads them into the career that they ultimately went into, or in your case, the vocation you went into? Mm. So tell us a little about your, your early years. I love the starting point because there's a quote from a novel by Graham Greene that's uh, always stayed with me. In his novel, uh, The Power and the Glory, he writes, there's always a moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. And uh, I, I do believe in, in, in that motto of, you know, give me a child until you're seven and I will give you the person, give you the man, as he said originally. Um, so, yes, I think uh, early years do form us, uh, shape us for the future. Uh, my father was in the army and we had postings. My father was Welsh and my mother was Scottish. And every time a posting came up, she would always say to my father, uh, put down Scotland. So we had postings in uh, Schoon, in Perth, in Glasgow, Glasgow where I was born. You'd never know I was a Glaswegian from my accent, but I am a Glaswegian. And uh, um, and and so the uh, childhood was spent between Scotland and Singapore, where my father had two tours of duty in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, so they were a big influence on me. And uh, I was one of five children. I was the second eldest. Um, I very much looked after uh, the three younger ones uh, through my childhood. And I think that actually shaped my future because um, what has fulfilled me most and brought me most happiness 
um, is the pastoral side of my ministry, uh, just caring for people. Um, I love helping people. And uh, and throughout my life, I've been able to do that. And you, you went to a military school and um, yeah. you, you were head boy too. I was. And um, this military school was very military. Uh, we wore uh, battle dress for our school uniform. We marched to every meal. Um, every year we had Grand Day and Troop the Colour. Um, and uh, as well as being head boy, I, I was also colour ensign. So whenever I see the trooping of the colour uh, and and the officer who is uh, called upon to carry the ensign, I always look very closely at that. At this military boarding school, which was really quite Spartan, it was the Duke of York's Royal Military School. Um, you're, you're right, I did become head boy. Um, it was called the Chief School Prefect. And I think that year uh, was also a major influence in my life because it taught me uh, about leadership. And during my time um, at the Duke of York School, um, the, the major influence on me was the chaplain and his wife, uh, Clifford and Nora Davis. And, uh, and again, uh, that relationship helped shape me um, for the future. Were your parents religious, James? No, they weren't actually. Um, they were they were very good. Um, and my father was a very honourable man, an army officer. He had worked his way up through the ranks. Um, in Singapore, he became the commanding officer of the Water Transport Division of the Far Eastern Land Forces. Very grand, and uh, he he was a very fine man. Very. Uh, upright and full of integrity. Um, my mother was a Scot. She was thrifty, but she loved throwing parties. Um, and all five children had to do their party pieces uh, 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 at the party. Um, and um, it was a very exciting childhood, really, because there was always this move. We were every two to three years, we were moving to another place. At the age of 10, when my parents had their second posting to Singapore, I went off to this boarding school where my brother, a year older than I, uh, was already there. Um, and I remember um, very vividly how in my first year, um, at the age of 10, um, my parents ringing from Southampton as they set sail for Singapore, uh, knowing that I wouldn't see them until the next summer because the army uh, paid for you to fly out to see your parents just once a year. Uh, but you knew that, you know, for 10 months now, you wouldn't be seeing them. And at Christmas time and at Easter time, uh, we went off and had our holidays with, with relatives uh, in this country. Um, and I think that was a big influence on my life, too. It must have made you quite independent at quite an early age. Yes, it did. Um, you know, we used to, I mean, we flew off to Singapore. Um, and in those days, British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, uh, they had an auntie set aside for the miners who were flying out. Um, and of course, you did your very best to avoid the auntie. <laughs> so you did, you did develop um, a high degree of independence, yes. So I know that you went on to read theology at Exeter University. And you've mentioned a chaplain who mm. was important to you while you were at school. Mm. So what was it that took you down that route? Why did you decide you wanted to read theology? What was it that, that 
shaped you in terms of what you were going to go on to do? I had a very vivid spiritual experience while I was at school. The timetable at the school was very rigid. Every moment was filled. And uh, on Saturday, um, after the results of all the sports that were given, um, we then went off and had a film. And this particular night, the film didn't turn up and we had genuine free time. And I remember, as we were being told that, that um, all I wanted to do was to go to the chapel. There was a beautiful chapel, a military chapel, uh, in the um, uh, in the playing fields of the school. The school, by the way, was founded in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, for the orphans of the Napoleonic Wars. And even to this day, I think admission is um, on, on compassionate grounds. And I went into the chapel and I walked up the aisle, nobody else was there, and I knelt down at the altar rail and, and I simply gave my life to Christ. And uh, I, I remember asking God to forgive me for the things that I said and done that were wrong. And I asked him if he would just come to me and fill my life. And, and nobody had spoken to me about this. Uh, I just knew that that's what I had to do. And as I prayed, I began, I began to cry. And then I found my whole being was filled with, with, with a joy and a peace. And, and so great was the joy inside me that I remember wanting to dance across the playing fields back to my boarding house. But as you can imagine, in a boys' military boarding school, that wasn't the thing to be seen doing, uh, dancing across the playing fields. So I learned at a very early age to stifle my emotions. Uh, but I thought that that was God calling me uh, to be a priest. And so when it came to leaving school, um, that's what I pursued to study theology at university uh, and then to go forward um, for the priesthood. How old were you then, James? 14 when I had that experience. And and I think it was brought on through this um, there was a certain loneliness, even though you had lots of friends um, in, in the school. The fact that my parents were abroad, um, the, that I saw them once a year, made me very aware of my aloneness, really. Um, and, and I think, therefore, made me even more open to praying and you know, wanting God to be close to me. Um, and, and that experience um, stayed with me and, and, and fueled my life at school as I thought of you know, what I'd be doing in the future. But in fact, when I got to university to, to, to read theology, um, I then got involved in drama and music at Exeter University. And I took part in various productions and ended up uh, producing the Mikado uh, at the recently opened Northcott Theatre on the campus at, at the university. And the general manager of the theatre um, saw me do this and said, have you ever thought of going into the theatre? And I then went and worked in the summer holidays um, uh, at the Edinburgh Festival. And, and that kindled something in me. I thought, yes, I'd like to do this. And then I took part in a, in a BBC broadcast. And I thought, well, actually, I, I saw the producer at work and thought, well, I, I'd like to do that too. So um, for 
about um, uh, how many years? Te 10 years after leaving university, I did various other things, including teaching and also being a producer of audiovisuals. So I didn't actually come to be ordained until my early 30s. And, and did you enjoy the time you spent as a teacher? I did, although I knew I wasn't going to be doing it forever. And, and the most amazing thing about teaching um, is meeting people 10, 20, 30 years later whom you taught and, and, and then hearing from them um, what they thought of you as a teacher. And of course, the most rewarding thing um, about being a teacher and years later meeting people that you taught um, is coming across people who say things like, um, you know, the fact that you believed in me made all the difference to my life. Um, but you don't realise that at the time, often when you're a teacher, because sometimes it can just be a hard slog. But, but as in everything, you know, relationships are the key. And, and as a teacher, you do have that extraordinary opportunity of, of believing in young people, seeing their potential, nurturing them and encouraging them into their own future. And where did you teach, James? I was very privileged to teach at Seven Oaks School um, in, in Kent, um, which in my day was an independent school, but the local authority paid for, I think, the top 30 of the 11 plus. So there were the, the, the state uh, funded uh, people, as well as those who could pay to, to send their children to the school. and. And I found, to be honest, that I learned as much as I taught uh, when when I was a teacher at Seven Oaks School. So what was it then that decided you to become ordained in your early 30s? Well, I, I left teaching after about four years and I then became a producer and I produced audiovisuals, videos, audio cassettes. Um, especially uh, for uh, use with young people in schools uh, and in churches. Um, and I, I absolutely loved doing that. You know, I produced uh, some of the very first uh, audio cassettes, um, uh, you know, audio book cassettes with people like Kenneth Williams and, and Derek Nimmo. Uh, but all the time, although I was enjoying the creativity of doing that, um, there was this sort of nagging thought at the back of my mind, and I suppose much, much deeper down in my heart, that one day I would go forward and, and offer myself uh, for the priesthood. And it happened to me a bit like what happened at school. Um, I was uh, on a skiing holiday. In fact, I was helping to run this holiday for about 40 uh, young adults. And we would ski all day. And then after a wonderful day skiing, uh, we'd have you know, the evening meal, uh, the fondue or whatever it was. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, I would do like a thought for the day. And the theme that I had chosen uh, was, now how does God guide us uh, in our life? And... Um, and and I used to prepare in the morning uh, my little talk, and then I would go out in the afternoon and ski with everybody else. And this particular um, 
day, as I was preparing, um, I, I just had this nagging thought in my head. Um, here I was telling everybody else about how God might guide them. And I just sensed God saying to me, yes, but what about you? Um, how will I guide you? And I sort of pushed the question aside as I had to prepare my talk. Um, and then um, I went out um, to ski and the snow had fallen overnight. It was the most beautiful sight, fresh snow, uh, blue skies, the sun shining. And, and all you could hear was the whirring of the ski lift. In this case, it was a button that you put between your legs and it sort of yanked you up the mountainside. There was nobody else about. And uh, the morning's preparation was still going through my head and me hearing, not like you're hearing my voice, but just the thought kept coming back. Well, what about you? What about you? And I was, as it were, sort of wrestling with God as I was going up. The button praying really i mean i often pray going up on the ski lift um and then um halfway up the mountain um i gave in and i just shouted out it wasn't some sort of submissive prayer it was okay if that's what you want me to do i'll do it and again as at school um that saturday evening as i as i blurted that out I, I just found this peace and joy uh, flooding me uh, on the inside. And, and I just knew um, that that's what I had to do and to do it now. And I came back from this holiday. I was already uh, 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 engaged to Sarah. And I said, um, I've, got, I've got something to tell you. Um, I think God's calling me to be a priest, and I think that's what I should do. And rather wonderfully, Sarah's father uh, had been a priest, and and so she knew what that life was. Although I rather thought she thought she was escaping that vicarage life um, uh, as we got together, but um, it was a wonderful preparation for her as a curate's wife, then a vicar's wife, and ultimately a bishop's wife. And so just talk to us a little about that journey, because I suspect many people listening uh, to the podcast just wouldn't understand how careers progress yes. in the church. But there is progression. So how do you start and then what do you do next and what do you do next? Yes. And how ultimately do you end up as the Bishop of Liverpool? Right. Um, it's a very flat organisation, the church. I mean, it's not really an organisation because... It's very much you know, from the bottom up, it's grassroots, it's focused on the parish, and the vast majority of people who get ordained uh, spend their life, as my father-in-law did, um, as a parish priest or parish minister. Um, and, and that's what I thought that I would be. Uh, and uh, having done my theological training, some more theological training at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, um, I then went and served my curacy um, in Bristol at Christchurch Clifton, just near the suspension bridge. And curacies last about three or four years. Um, and mine lasted eight years, and for various reasons. Um, it was a large church. We had a lot of young professional people, uh, a lot of students who came. And that was the focus of, of my own pastoral work, really. And we ended up staying um, eight years and um, 
our first child was born, Harriet was born in Oxford, and then Jemima and Tabitha were born in Bristol. And uh, we had a wonderful family life there. And but but after eight years of being a curate and then what's called an associate vicar, uh, the time did come for me to go and be a vicar in my own right. Um, and I was then invited um, by a church in South London, in South Croydon, um, called Emmanuel Church. And uh, the local church is allowed, with the sort of bishop's help, uh, to choose its own uh, vicar. And I was interviewed and I was asked uh, to be their vicar. And, and we were there four years and we had a wonderful time, uh, a local church really serving its own local community. And we saw tremendous growth within those four years, growth in numbers, growth in, in giving. And um, we, uh, we started a service and all age worship, uh, I remember on the 9th of the 9th, 1990. And uh, every week, more and more people came to this service, which was really geared toward reaching out uh, to families. And then the bishop came to do a confirmation uh, one Sunday, and he, you know, obviously looked at the church and what was going on. And then he asked to see me. And I remember him saying, and, and this is one of the jobs of a bishop, to identify people's gifts and to see where those gifts should you know, best be deployed. Um, and uh, and this was the phrase he used um, to me. Um, he said, I think you should be painting on a bigger canvas. And and I think that was full of insight. Um, we loved being at Emmanuel Church, South Croydon. It was a real family church and the children loved it and lots of friendships. Uh, the parents, friends with each other, the children, friends with each other. Um, but I could see what the bishop was driving at. And, and so he put my name forward uh, to become a bishop. And then uh, there is a very long process um, and uh, the Archbishop of York was made aware of, um, of, of, of you know, what I was doing. And he was looking for, uh, for a bishop who had some experience of growing a church, uh, enabling a church to, to expand and really reach out to its local community and make connections with people. And a vacancy came up um, uh, the Bishop of Hull. I didn't know Hull at all. I didn't know Yorkshire at all. Um, and he asked to see me, interviewed me. And then he put forward my name to the Prime Minister, John Major at the time, who then advised the Queen, who ultimately has responsibility for appointments in the church, now the King. Um, so um, on the advice of her Prime Minister, uh, she then invited me to be uh, the Bishop of Hull. And we went to Hull. Um, we had four years uh, as Bishop of Hull. Um, again, uh, a, a, a great adventure being the Bishop of Hull. It was there that I really learned what it was to be a bishop. Um, and then um, after three years, uh, David Shepherd, who'd been Bishop of Liverpool, retired. And uh, the commission that is set up to look for uh, new diocesan bishops uh, were made aware of the work that I'd done in Hull and then asked me to become the Bishop of Liverpool. Just um, tell our listeners something about your your responsibilities as a bishop, because obviously you, you sit in the House of Lords. So 
how how does that work? How how can you be a bishop and then you you sit as part of the legislature? Um, and what's your relationship between the church and state? Well, what big questions, Mark. Um, you usually enter the House of Lords after about five years of being a Darson bishop. So I became Bishop of Liverpool in 98, 2003. Um, I then uh, entered the House of Lords because the House of Lords reserves 26 seats uh, for the most senior bishops in the Church of England. Uh, the five most senior, Archbishops York, Canterbury, Bishop London, Winchester, Durham, uh, they sit on the House of Lords as of right. Uh, and then the next 21 bishops are on seniority. So I sat in, in, in the House of Lords uh, for 10 years altogether. I see the House of Lords um, basically as the elders of the nation. I think there are, uh, you know, two houses in the one parliament. The uh, House of Commons is the elected chamber. Uh, they have the ultimate authority because they're democratically elected. In the House of Lords, you have people drawn from all walks of life who have experience of every aspect of, of life. And out of their experience and their expertise, they're able to refine the laws that come up to them from the House of Commons. Um, and so they can inform the legislation much more deeply, in fact, than the House of Commons is able to do. Although, as I say, they have the ultimate authority. And, and the bishops, because basically they are pastors, they care for the people, not just in their churches, but in the region for which they're responsible. The bishops, out of their pastoral knowledge and experience, can contribute to those debates about the legislation. And... Uh, and, and being a Darston bishop is a big job, it's a heavy workload, and you can't be in the House of Lords all the time. Uh, I made it um, my own sort of discipline to be there every Tuesday. So I'd come down uh, from Liverpool uh, on a Monday so that I could spend the whole of Tuesday, and then I'd go back on, on, on the Tuesday evening. Um, I got invited to serve on one of the important committees, the uh, communications, the media uh, committee. Um, and because I was also bishop to prisons at that time, uh, I was able to contribute to debates about prison and prison reform. So um, it's a balancing act. And in fact, for most people in the House of Lords, it's a balancing act because you have uh, other jobs to do but you bring your expertise and experience to bear on the legislation that comes before you. And were there, were there any debates or any moments when you felt uneasy between being um, a senior member of the church and sitting uh, in the house or commenting or being involved in affairs of state? The honest answer to that question, Mark, is I don't think I ever felt uncomfortable. Uh, there were times when um, you'd ask a question. Um, there were times when you'd take part in the debate when you knew that uh, your position was at variance either with the government or the opposition parties. Um, but, you know, the great thing about the House of Lords is that there are debates um, and you engage in the debates and you listen to the arguments and you contribute your own insights. So, you know, given that that's the platform, um, I don't think I saw any conflict whatsoever. I, 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 I saw myself 
there as what's called a Lord spiritual, speaking out of my own uh, knowledge of the prison system as bishop to prisons, uh, speaking out of my own understanding of deprivation and challenge. I chaired the New Deal for Communities program uh, in Liverpool. I was immersed in some of the issues of, of poverty and out of out of those experiences, I was able to uh, contribute to debates. Um, I um, was a party to establishing uh, some of the first city academies um, uh, in Liverpool, the Academy of St Francis of Assisi, which took the environment uh, as its specialism. Um, so I was able to speak about uh, education. Uh, I remember the predecessor school for the Academy of St. Francis. Uh, I think they had 27 GCSEs A to C. And within a number of years, that had gone from 27% to 98%. And largely down to the leadership of the principal. And, uh, uh, and as in everything, uh, leadership is key. Um, I know that we talk about happiness. My own understanding of organizations is that the happiness of an organization, be it a school or a parish church or a diocese, uh, depends upon the leadership that is given by those in leadership. You've done a lot of work in advising the government over the years, probably most notably over Hillsborough and the Hillsborough Inquiry. So could you say a little about that, um, how you were approached? Uh, you were Bishop of Liverpool at the time, so obviously uh, very appropriate that you should be asked to do that. Um, but also very time consuming and I imagine quite harrowing at times. So um, if you could just talk about that experience, James. The Hillsborough disaster happened in 1989. So I became Bishop of Liverpool in 98. And in 1999, we had the 10th anniversary. And every year, uh, the Hillsborough families, um, uh, the, the supporters of the football club um, fans, they would gather at the stadium in Anfield uh, for a memorial service. And the um, family's representatives, um, Trevor and, and Jenny Hicks, uh, for example, um, came to see me to ask me if I would preside at the uh, service for the 10th anniversary. And uh, as I listened to them, um, they told me about the terrible and tragic circumstances in which they lost both their daughters. And they told me about the questions that were outstanding, the, the answers that they had never been given. and. Uh, and when they spoke, um, it appealed to, to, to my pastoral heart. And, and when they said, would I preside? I said, of course I would. And I did so with um, the uh, Auxiliary Catholic Bishop of Liverpool, uh, uh, Bishop Tom Williams. And uh, at that uh, 10th anniversary service, um, I could see that Hillsborough was was an open wound um, and that it would never ever heal until the families uh, learned the truth about what happened to their loved ones in those days the 96 now uh, the 97 and um, I then uh, presided over 
the 15th anniversary and the 20th anniversary. And uh, at the 20th anniversary, nearly the whole stadium was full, well over 30,000, I think nearly 40,000 people came to the 20th anniversary. And uh, at that uh, uh, service, which was in two parts really, the first was a remembering of the 96, and the second part was more like a rally where different people made speeches. And Andy Burnham, who was Secretary of State for DCMS at the time, had been invited to uh, to speak at the rally part of it. And uh, and in the middle of his speech, um, he uh, said something which provoked a person in the crowd to shout out justice for the 96. And with that lone voice in the stadium, the whole crowd then stood up and chanted justice for the 96. And I've often said that if you'd got the whole crowd into the stadium half an hour beforehand and rehearsed them, they could not have been more in unison, more pitch perfect. And, and Andy Burnham then went back to the Prime Minister at the time, Gordon Brown, and said, there really has to be uh, an inquiry into Hillsborough. And to cut a long story short, um, it was decided to set up an independent panel uh, to access all the documents from public authorities that had anything to do with Hillsborough, to assess, to analyse these documents, to assess them, and then to write an account to give a full of, uh, understanding of what happened on that day and in the aftermath. Um, and, and then uh, they needed to find a chair. And it was at that point uh, that the government came to me and asked me if I would chair the independent panel. And it was the most important aspect of my ministry as Bishop of Liverpool to do it. And it still goes on, James. It's not concluded quite yet. It has not yet concluded because there have been trials and they had to be completed uh, before the government could then respond to the second report, which I wrote, because you'll remember the independent panel led to fresh inquests and those fresh inquests returned a determination, a verdict of unlawful killing. Then there were various prosecutions. Those had to be concluded. And during that time, Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, asked me if I would write a report on learning from the family's experiences so that their perspective would never be lost and so that those lessons learned could be embedded across government. And we gave the title of this report um, as the patronising disposition of unaccountable power which is what it seemed to us the families had wrestled with all those years, 34 years ago now. They had wrestled with all of the time because in all innocence and in good faith, they had asked questions about how their loved ones had died and they were constantly pushed back by people who patronised them. And uh, that report with its 25 points of learning is now with the government who are... I think, on the verge of responding. And there were three principal points of learning out of the 25, very briefly. First of all, there should be a charter for those bereaved through public tragedy. So every state agency, every public authority should sign this charter, 
which basically promises to put the interest of the bereaved above the reputation of the organization. The natural reaction of organizations under scrutiny is to protect their own backs, to protect the reputation. So this charter makes them put the needs of the bereaved ahead of their own reputation. Then a duty of candor on the police because the police were not forthcoming with all the information. The families had to fight and fight in order to uh, find out uh, what the police had done. And as our panel showed, um, the records that the police had written, uh, many of these, over 200 of them, had been changed, basically to shift responsibility from the police onto the fans. So a duty of candor is what is being uh, asked for in this report. Um, and then um, what's called an equality of arms at inquest. 20% of all inquests in this country are contested. In other words, you go to an inquest to find out how your loved one died in a prison or in a hospital, and, uh, and, and you expect the coroner's court um, to uh, provide you with the information. Unfortunately, the state agencies often appear at those contested inquests, lawyered up, uh, paid for by public money, and the families come legally defenceless with no legal support and face uh, this unlevel playing field of state agencies protecting their own reputation with highly paid lawyers. And, and the, the third most important proposal is that the family should also be supported legally uh, when they come to an inquest to find out uh, how their loved one died. So uh, the families and survivors, I as the author of the report, uh, we are still waiting now for the government to respond uh, to those points of learning. And James, I know that you continue to do wonderful work supporting the government inquiries. I know that you're an advisor to Grenfell. Um, uh, there's a hospital inquiry that you've been chairing, which is pretty gruesome. Um, so you continue to make yourself available. So it must give you some degree of satisfaction in doing this work and uncovering the truth and helping people reconcile whatever issues or problems they might have had. I think fulfillment um, is the word I would reach for. Um, it is an enormous privilege to uh, be asked to help people. It goes back to what I said earlier, really, about you know that pastoral side, which brings great fulfillment. Uh, you know, sitting with somebody who's dying and being a help to them and their loved ones. Um, there is fulfillment in, in doing these things. I wouldn't call it happiness. Um, but it's a fulfilled life that you are gifted by being able uh, to, to help people. Um, and, and you're right, I, I've been involved in inquiries that come alongside people who have been uh, traumatically bereaved. And, uh, and again, it's been, it's been a privilege to, to be asked to do those things. But of course, um, with everybody who engages with those who have been traumatized, be it a nurse or a police officer or a fire officer, um, as you engage with people uh, who have been traumatized, um, you, you take part of that into yourself. Now, you're very reluctant to talk about that because what you're experiencing is nothing compared to those who 
have been tragically and traumatically bereaved. But you have to recognize that that does have an impact on you. And, and, and everybody will deal with that um, in their own way and, and in different ways. Uh, but I've had to learn how to deal with that emotional in, uh, attachment that is inevitable to coming alongside people um, and, and seeking to help them. And, um, you know, I was, I was asked recently to um, give a lecture to the College of Policing, um, to the next cadre of chief constables. And, uh, and making this point, the most important um, aspect, and this is an aspect of, of, of leadership really, is to recognize and not deny the impact that something is having upon you. The worst thing to do is to deny it. The most important thing is to recognize it and say, and I remember one, one person said, well, how, how, how do you recognize it? And I said, well, you know, maybe you're in a room with other people watching the television and suddenly you find you're the only person crying in the room and everybody else is just watching it. And, and, and so you just say to yourself, you know, why do I find that so moving? You know, what, what's, what's moving me to tears? And as you ask these questions of yourself, so, you know, you can trace back to actually um, this past week or this past month, I was involved in a very difficult situation and, and it did touch me deeply. And then, then once you recognise it, um, you then have to find your own way of dealing with it. Um, you know, just at this moment in time, Sarah and I now live in in, in North Yorkshire, and um, and nearly every Thursday morning, uh, we leave everything and we drive up to the North Yorkshire Moors. And there's a wonderful cafe in a little village called Rosedale called Grays on the Green, and they do the best the best bacon sandwiches in Yorkshire, probably in the whole of, the whole of the United Kingdom. And we get our coffee and our bacon sandwiches, and then we drive further up, and we just sit there, eating our bacon sandwiches, drinking our coffee, and looking over this glorious landscape. And, um, and just something happens, I'll speak for myself now, just something happens to me that, that, that things just seem to fall away from me as, as, as we just sit there. Um, and enjoy the landscape, enjoy each other's company, talk if we want to, keep silent if we want to. So everybody has to A, recognize the impact and B, find a mechanism of dealing with it. And to conclude, um, James, I just want to talk a little about your, your writing and your broadcasting because uh, you are a very talented and a very skilled writer. You've got a, a number of books in publication. Um, but also for many people, they'll know that you um, uh, you write and then you speak on Court uh, uh, for the Day on the Today programme, um, where you're incredibly good. I mean, you always, I think, um, capture the mood and, and leave people thinking. So have you always been a, a, a writer? Have you always enjoyed writing? Or is it something that comes naturally to you? Um, I, I love writing. Um... But no, I've not always been a writer. But I do thank God for the education that I had. Um, um, I did A-level Latin. And you have to understand grammar and the structure of the language. Um, I, I love the discipline of crafting a sentence. Um, George Orwell wrote a wonderful book, Inside the Whale, um, 
the essay, uh, Politics in the English Language, um, and he chides those of us who write in cliches and stereotypes. And, and he says the real hard work is finding the fresh expression, finding the original phrase. Um, and so I try to do that when I write, but I can only write when there's something inside me. And people sometimes say, well, what are you writing now? And the answer is, I'm not writing anything because there's nothing inside me that is exploding and wanting to get out. But the last two books um, uh, that I wrote, um, With My Whole Heart, which was a series of uh, meditations on, on, on the Psalms, uh, that came out of having had a triple heart bypass. Um, and I was diagnosed with that in the middle of doing the Hillsborough, chairing the Hillsborough Independent Panel, and uh, had wonderful surgeon and doctors, friends and nurses um, in, in Liverpool. Um, but for the convalescents, came over uh, to our house in Yorkshire, and, um, and every morning I would get up, um, I would uh, take my pills, have my breakfast, uh, I would read this psalm, then I'd go for a walk. And on my walk, I would meditate uh, on the psalm, just a few verses, and uh, and then when I got back, I just sat at my desk and scribbled my thoughts down. Um, and then when the publishers said they wanted a book out of me, I said, well, well, I've got this. And they said, well, show it to us. So that became with my whole heart. And then um, and then during lockdown, uh, when all of us had the opportunity to do something new, um, I found that everything that I'd done about Hillsborough was sort of coming to a head inside of me. Um, and, and I realized that throughout my life, um, actually ever since I was the chief school prefect of the Duke of York School, I'd always wanted to be fair. And, uh, and I thought I'd like to write a book about being fair, just in the way that you too, Mark, have written a book about fairness. Um, I, I wrote this book called um, Justice, um, justice for Christ's sake. And I thought maybe that was a bit too blasphemous. Now I asked my children, and they said, no doubt, go for it. That's a great title. So um, I, I wrote this book, Justice for Christ's Sake. Um, and I talked about um, Hillsborough. I talked about being um, bishop to prisons. I talked about justice and the earth. Um, and I talked about mercy. Uh, because one of the things, um, sadly, uh, about our society today is it is so merciless uh, the we treat people with with such a lack of mercy and uh, it's a tragedy and you'll often hear people saying we want justice and that's right we do need to live in a just world but we also need mercy and so the last chapter in the book um, is about mercy as well as about justice and of all the years that you've done thought for today, thought for today, is is there one, James, that's stuck in your mind? Yes. Absolutely. Um, you write thought for the day, um, the the day before. You you you're not allowed to write it before that. You have to talk with the producer about the subject that um, you could write about. Then you write it and then you read it to the producer who ultimately has responsibility for the piece because it's two minutes, 40 seconds of uninterrupted broadcast. And uh, every now and again, I think it's happened to me about five times in my well over 30 years of doing um, 
probably nearly 40 years now of doing thought for the day um about five times i've been rung in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning and told that something has happened and i need to change my thought for the day and i had done a piece on the national health service and uh, i was rung at six o'clock in the morning and told about that terrible tragedy on the m40 when young people from starbridge coming back from a concert in the royal albert hall where they had performed um, were killed um, in, in in their minibus and i was told that that was going to be um uh the the story running through the whole program um and that um it would be good if i could write uh, uh an appropriate thought for the day and there was a car that came to uh, take me to the studio and in the car i wrote uh the piece and i got to the studio and as i said two minutes 40 seconds is what's expected mine ran to just um 90 seconds and uh, uh and i told the producer that it was shorter than usual uh, and i was asked to tell brian redhead who was the one of the presenters that day and of course his son had been killed in a road accident and he introduced me in a very sympathetic way and i did my piece and uh, and then at, at the end um he back announced it with great empathy and uh, and i have never had such a big response to a thought for the day as i had uh, that day um and i remember quoting um uh, a writer nicholas walterstorff um, who had lost his own son in a climbing accident uh, in his 20s and um and uh he talked about um, the tears of God. Um, and uh, in the Bible, it says nobody can look upon the face of God and live. And he said, he interpreted and said, maybe it's because nobody could look upon the face of God in tears and live beyond that point. And so I did have thought for the day um, on the tears that would be shed at at that school that day as the children were told the news and suggested that the tears that they were shedding uh had their source in in the tears of god himself and as i say um uh, a remarkable number of people wrote, wrote to me and and again it goes back to what i said earlier about that about the great privilege of being in in, in a pastoral um, work um, when you have some sense of what you've been or what you've done or what you've said um, has helped somebody um, there's enormous enormous fulfillment um, when you're privileged um, to experience that well thank you very much James thank you for sharing this podcast with us uh, and sharing your incredible journey through which you've obviously touched the lives of so many people, be they at school or be they at Hull or be they in Liverpool or the inquiries or um, touching 
I suspect many, many people through your very thoughtful thoughts of the day on the Today programme over, as you said, nearly four decades. So from, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for being um, so open with all of your thoughts and for um, sharing your time with us on this podcast. Thank you. Great. Well, it's lovely to spend time with you, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. To listen to more episodes and find out how to get happy in your working life, head to workall.co. Work happier.